0: Isn't it grand to be a Christian? The psalmist stated in Psalm 27 verse 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and that I may dwell and inquire the beauty of the Lord and to inquire His temple. One thing, as was mentioned earlier, we're so thankful that God has blessed us with the opportunity to assemble and to come together tonight not only our regular membership at Pippin, but the visitors who come our way, we're always so thankful for you. We hope that you find the service encouraging, uplifting, and more than anything else, truthful and strictly in accordance to the Word of God. As we come together this evening, you may notice on the wall to my left, we're going to cast the spotlight tonight on an Old Testament book one that may not be the most immediate that comes to our mind as we mention books in the Old Testament, but nonetheless a particular book that has, as always, so much to encourage us and so much to say. In fact, it's my hope that we might make a two-part series out of this, so tonight and next Sunday night, if it be the will of God, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. The book of Lamentations is one that maybe is, again, not the most immediate favorite. I'm sure as we mentioned books in the Old Testament, probably the book of Genesis comes to mind, maybe the book of Exodus, in as much as it makes a strong detail about the children of Israel's leaving, or Exodus from Egypt, later books perhaps like Psalms, but probably not Lamentations. However, it too is inspired. And it too has so many things that not only are vivid records of the ancient era, but not only that contained in it are precepts which are so meaningful and so very helpful to you and me today. On that slide before you, I would ask that you notice that the author of this book is none other than Jeremiah. When you and I think of him, we remember that 52-chapter book that is the book of Jeremiah, but let us not forget that this book is in many ways an inspired continuation of the book of Jeremiah. Where the book of Jeremiah ends, the book of Lamentations picks up and and continues from there. In addition to that, you might notice, interestingly, that third comment. The literary style that accompanies the book of Lamentations, it really is rather unique in that if you've ever taken a careful note of it, how many verses are in chapter 1? And how many verses are in chapter 2? And how many verses are in chapter 3? And how many verses are in chapter 4? And how many verses are in chapter 5? You'll notice that those answers are the following. 22, 22, 66, 22, and 22. Now it's no coincidence that there happens to be 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And you probably can already figure out what has happened. In chapter number one, in chapter number two, and also again in chapter number four, the opening word in each of those verses is such that it goes alphabetically in terms of order. Verse number one, the first word of that verse begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second verse, its first word begins with the second letter of the Greek alphabet, or the Hebrew alphabet, and so on down through the chapter. Now, before you take too much into that, notice chapter five is different. Although it does have 22 verses, it is not the case that it goes alphabetically in order relative to the first word and the letter with which it begins. Now, we've left out chapter 3. It has 66 verses, which is exactly 3 times 22. And you'll notice here the verses occur in groups of three. All that being said, God had an interesting acrostic view toward the Book of Lamentations, storing in it for you and for me some interesting literature and an interesting literary style, even among everything else. I might invite you to notice perhaps two last things. The backdrop for the Book of Lamentations is not the happiest in the world. We will detail that rather carefully, not only tonight but in the lesson next Sunday evening because the scene has to do with what we're about to come to on the next slide. Without further ado, why don't we turn to that slide then and build at least momentarily an interesting history touching the background and the scenes surrounding this book of Lamentations. I would ask you to again appreciate Jeremiah is the author, and Jeremiah began his prophetic labors in the year 626 B.C. May we never forget that Jeremiah, by his very time span, labored in a very challenging time. The people of God were rebelling against him, and in the crosshairs of the future rested their captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah was sent to them, urging them to repent, urging them to, in fact, distance themselves from the sinful ways that had so often clouded their past and to follow without anything clouding their path the fullness of obedience to God. As Jeremiah called upon them to do that, quickly notice some of the famous passages. Oh, earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord, Jeremiah 22 verse 29 one chapter later in Jeremiah 23, verse 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh a rock in pieces? God had sent forth His word through the prophet, and He admonished them to hear it and heed it. In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse number 16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest unto your souls." but they said, we will not walk therein. Jeremiah 7 verse 28, this is a nation that obeyeth not God. No wonder then we appreciate in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, God in a very sad tone through the prophet then declares to them, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water Jeremiah had a difficult task to fill the people's mind with the nature of God's Word and urge them to repent and to urge them to at once rush to God's side. But just as we noted in Jeremiah 6 verse 16, the people said, We will not walk therein. They had no intent of bending their stubborn will to God's demands. And in that lawlessness, we now find the remainder of the scene so often found in Jeremiah. You'll notice as we come to about the middle of that slide, God, of course, knowing very well what the future would hold for them, had the following observations. Babylon was coming. Since the people would not repent, since they would not turn to God, God's judgment then for them was not to be turned aside. Babylon came in three tremendous waves. Remember, at this particular time in history, Babylon was the strongest empire on earth. She had just defeated in 609 B.C. the famous Assyrian Empire, and now she rested supreme. In 605 B.C., she made her first attack on Jerusalem. First attack. Babylon did not destroy Jerusalem then, but she did take many of the noteworthy citizens as captives. Perhaps you can well appreciate the most famous was a young boy named Daniel. Of course, the same Daniel who wrote the book of Daniel, that 12-chapter beautifully magnificent epistle. So Daniel was hauled off into captivity, but we remember that not many years later Babylon came knocking again. You see, in the intervening years, the people of God, who still had at least a small degree of freedom, they became too arrogant and they lifted up in rebellion against Babylon. So Babylon came back. In 597 B.C., they came back and again let Jerusalem know who was the ruling empire. And they took some more people captive. Most notably this time was Ezekiel. By this time, you began to appreciate that we're now with only one remaining. Eleven years later, Jerusalem again lifted herself up far too mightily for she thought that she could rebel against Babylon and she thought that there might be some hope that she could ultimately become free again. This time Babylon came and this time she destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, ransacked it, utterly left the city in desolation and in ruins. It is, with that in mind, I would ask you to read with me from Jeremiah 52 and let Jeremiah himself describe what happened. In Jeremiah 52, let's begin, if you would, with me in verse number 13. "...and burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, and all the houses of the great men burned he with fire." And all the army of the Chaldeans that were with the captain of the guard break down all the walls of Jerusalem round about. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive certain of the poor of the people, and the residue of the people that remained in the city, and those that fell away that fell to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the multitude. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left certain of the poor of the land for vine dressers and for husbandmen. Also, the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord, and the bases, and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans brake and carried all the brass of them to Babylon. The cauldrons also, and the shovels, and the snuffers, and the bowls, and the spoons, and all the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered, they took away. And the basins, and the fire pans, and the bowls, and the cauldrons, and the candlesticks, and the spoons, and the cups, that which was of gold, in gold, And that which was of silver, in silver, took the captain of the guard away. You and I have just noted all the riches that accompanied that magnificent temple. We remember how Solomon had constructed it. We remember how it was filled with the finest of gold and silver and woodwork and metal. The Babylonians had no respect for that. They came and hauled off all the fine brass and gold and silver and took all of it to Babylon. You can imagine the shell of what was left behind. The king's house was destroyed, the palace was burned, the temple was burned, many of the people taken captive and those that weren't, many of them were killed. As you and I come to that slide, remember, this was not a happy time in Israelite history. And Jeremiah witnessed it. Jeremiah loved his people. Oh, how his heart was filled with love, hoping that they would appreciate that they were the chosen people and that they would turn to God, but they wouldn't. And Jeremiah had to sit and watch them be destroyed. He had to watch that temple be burned. He had to watch the palace and the various features and those in whose hope the people of God were off into captivity. They went. No wonder the last comment on that slide is this one. The book of Lamentations was written by an eyewitness. It was written by a man who observed this. It was not hearsay to him. He literally watched it happen. No wonder Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. Tears flowed down his face as he saw the bad choices his people were making and the sadness of how they were going to then receive God's judgment because of it. As you and I end that slide and come to the next one, it helps us see that Lamentations can often be a great stronghold to you and me when difficulties arise because these people were facing it too. As you and I come to the top of that slide, let's then begin to notice several lessons extracted from the book of Lamentations. The first thing might then be this one. Sin is not overlooked. I have asked a few leading questions by way of some of the comments found at the top of that slide. The people of Israel, isn't it true that they were the chosen people of God? Deuteronomy 14, 2 highlights that as well as Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. God selected them and handpicked them, if you will, to carry out the great blessing upon the human family. Didn't Paul quote some of those ideas in the New Testament when it said, "...in thy seed..." Speaking of Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We read that, of course, in Genesis 22, verse 18, and Paul quoted it in Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and following. In light of those observations, you and I notice, these people were the very ones through whom Jesus the Christ would one day be born into the world. Notice, though, that they had sinned. And just because they were the chosen people, did not mean God would overlook their sin. Just because they had a rich heritage with notable figures like Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joshua, and so many others. Notice God did not overlook their sin. As you and I develop some of those thoughts, might you and I appreciate that by definition, sin is a transgression of the law. God's law, 1 John 3, 4 It is a violation of that which is His will. And this people had a very specific will given, that law of Moses. And they had not been faithful to it. At the present time in their history, they in fact were far, far from it in faithfulness. Didn't God say, this is a nation that obeyeth not God? He said that of Israel. He said that of these people, the people of Judah. Surely, in light of all that, you'll notice how Jeremiah described them in Lamentations 3, verse 42. Almost exactly the middle of the book. Notice how the writer states it. We have transgressed and have rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Jeremiah confessed it, in fact, for the entirety of the nation. The only sad thing is they didn't feel the same way. We have rebelled and transgressed, Jeremiah said. In the admission of that and the confession of it, we notice God didn't pardon it. He gave them the opportunity. He sent His prophets to them, reminding them of the necessity of being faithful to Him, but they would have none of it. Surely these next comments then come before us. Punishment followed. I would ask you to notice along that in Lamentations 4, verse 13. For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her, they have wandered as blind men in the streets. They have polluted themselves with blood so that men could not touch their garments. And one more time in Lamentations 5, verse 16, very last chapter. The crown has fallen from our head, Woe unto us that we have sinned. If only the people had felt the same way about sin as Jeremiah did. Jeremiah knew how serious it was and he understood what its implications would be. But the people, it seems, were far too trivial with it. I would ask you to notice the following. That lesson today is so meaningful and so very important, isn't it? God still does not overlook sin. You and I live in a society and in a time when, by and large, sin seems to be almost laughable. Might I ask, I'll not ask for a show of hands, but when is the last time that you heard someone use the word sin in a common conversation and mean it seriously? There are those who make fun of it. There are those who make light of it. There are others who, with a smirk on their face, consider it a light thing. And that is, after all, the lesson text for tonight. In Lamentations 1, verse number 12, look at how the description is put before us. God, speaking through Jeremiah, said, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? What a grand question. Here were people on the very brink of what they had just appreciated. They had been destroyed and they were not appreciative of the enormity of their sin. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by? We live in an age too where today many people have not seemingly the slightest conception of how serious sin is. They live from day to day. They speak what they ought not. They go where they ought not. They do what they ought not. And all the while seemingly with a smile on their face think that's no big deal. God does not overlook sin. Here, of His own chosen people, He didn't. Should you and I then dare to think that He would overlook it today when we live beneath a better covenant than they did? The gospel is far superior to the Old Testament in so many ways. That's the very point the Hebrew author states for us in Hebrews 8 verse 6, isn't it? We serve beneath a better covenant, a better testament. No wonder one last thought. In terms of appreciations on that slide would be this one. We know so, pre- so quickly some of those truths stated like this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, borrowing the language of Romans 6.23. The wages of sin, that which is its consequence, that which is its implication, that which is its eventual and utter end shall be death. How many today then, though they often think not of sin, are aligning themselves perfectly in such a way that judgment shall come down so harshly and ring with such eternal force upon them? You and I know what awaits at the day of judgment for all the disobedient. In fact, it is in that line I would ask you to remember with me, Nahum 1 verse 3. God will not by any means acquit those that are guilty. You and I live in a time again when often we appreciate that judges and those in authority, for one reason or maybe another, they are so quick to pound the gavel and those who are guilty are turned loose. They're turned free with little if any punishment. It shall not be so with the Almighty God of heaven. He will not acquit those who are guilty. They, just like ancient Israel, will face a destruction Surely, as you and I contemplate, sin won't be overlooked. Sometimes our nation hopes that it will be. Sometimes individuals pray that it will be. But in the final analysis, is that what the Bible teaches? Lamentations is forevermore an appreciation that sin won't be overlooked. Why don't we add to that another lesson, namely this one. Not only will sin not be overlooked, might I ask you what the testimony relative to the character of God is. You and I might begin with this question. If Israel was God's chosen people, if they were the very ones to whom God had been so gracious and so benevolent, then wouldn't it be fair to say, why did God punish them this way? Why not give them another chance? God was powerful enough to do anything that He wanted. He could have turned Babylon back Himself. He could have given Judah another opportunity. He could have given them ten more years and if you only you'll repent. But the curtain fell at this time. Jerusalem would never rise in the power that she had before. Now, she did come back from captivity. We know that. And then when we read books like Nehemiah and Ezra, we appreciate that there was a great effort that was brought forth, but never did she have the strength and the national power that she had had before. Why did God allow her to be punished this way? Maybe in quick answer, you and I could say this. This very book of Lamentations does highlight some interesting statements. I would ask that you and I notice some of them. The first thing might be to observe this. We've highlighted Jerusalem's destruction. Question, did God kill every Jew that was alive at the time? Did He absolutely destroy it to the point that it could never have been rebuilt in any sense? The answer is no. Lamentations 3 verse 22 says, I would ask you to note the way it words. Verse 22 of chapter 3, "...it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed." because his compassions fail not. Things were bad. The temple was gone. Many people were off into captivity. But Jeremiah said, it's still of God's mercy we're not consumed. There was still a remnant that was left. There was still hope for a future. May you and I quickly say today that were it not for the long-suffering character of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, were it not for the extension and the greatness of His patience, You and I can still thank Him for the fact we aren't consumed. Aren't you thankful that God allowed you to live to obey the gospel? There are individuals, of course, who wait later in life. Maybe they're age 30 or 40 before they obey the gospel. Can't they be thankful that God allowed their life to be spared so that they could, in fact, render faithful obedience and ultimately leave this life in hope of heaven? I'm sure many of us could be thankful that God has been so merciful and so long-suffering to us. Peter put it like this in 2 Peter 3, verse 15. The long-suffering of our God is salvation. As you and I develop that point more thoroughly, notice God is absolutely just. The people had earned their destruction. They had earned their captivity. And God gave them exactly what they had earned. Today, might you and I quickly say that on that fateful day of judgment, many shall find their eternity cast before them in a very, very tragic place called hell. But yet the judgment of God on that occasion and on that day will be absolutely just in every regard. They will have had opportunity to respond and they will have had opportunity to obey the gospel. Is it God's fault they rejected it? Is it God's fault they rebelled against it? Is it God's fault that they, in fact, became apostate and turned aside from it? It won't be heaven's fault. We read in Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9, Though he were a son that learned he obedience by the things that he suffered, we appreciate that the Lord Jesus became obedient, and in so doing became the author of eternal salvation to all that obey him. Those that obey him. Notice again the justice of God. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, notice again the statement therein made concerning the events of the judgment. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, Will the verdict at the day of judgment be just? Absolutely. Will it be in accordance to the deeds of the each person's individual choices in life? Absolutely. The judgment is going to be a serious thing, of course. But notice, just like Israel had her chances and her opportunities to obey and had rejected them, and finally, the justice of God brought judgment upon them. There are some who accuse the Bible of basically being a terrible document. For they say, how could a just God cast anyone into an eternal hell? May we say that the nature of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the testament and the covenant that it has brought into being is so amazingly perfect and it has all of eternity in its foresight. To reject it, one rejects all of the blessings that go with it. To reject the gospel is to reject heaven, which the gospel promises. If you forfeit one, you forfeit the other. When Israel forfeited her allegiance to God, they also forfeited her protection of them. They forfeited the blessings and benefits that they were able to have enjoyed, but were no longer theirs to have. Maybe you can note with me also the following. So many New Testament books bring us to that same conclusion. Is it not said in Romans 2, verses 6 and 7, speaking again about a panoramic view of the day of judgment, Paul wrote it like this, Who shall render to every man according to his deeds? That sounds interesting, but let him explain. Verse number 7. To those who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life shall be theirs. But to those who are disobedient and to those who pursue unrighteousness, what awaits? Indignation and wrath. God has set before us the choice. I'm so thankful that you and I can make then the choice to pursue life and to follow the beauties and the marvelous pleasures of God with it and the blessings that come. Maybe this could be noted then as we come to the final section of the lesson this evening. So far we've noticed Lamentations has highlighted so many powerful truths. But what about this one? What also about this one? I've entitled it simply this, Look What Sin Does. It's so often the case, isn't it, that Satan is able to give the appearance of the appearance of that which is so pleasant and so noteworthy and so honorable and desirable in its relationship to sinful behavior. After all, that is a masterful thing and the devil has been able to do it from the beginning. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He approached Eve and said, What do you see over there? And that fruit looks so appetizing. It looks so good. And you'll notice not only that, He said, it'll make you wise. But not just humanly wise, it'll make you as gods, knowing good and evil. And all three times as Eve looked upon it, she succumbed to the temptation. But look what happened. All that she thought it would bring about. Do you suppose if she could have gone back, she would have undone any of it? Did it bring about the kind of reality that she wanted? Did it bring about a closeness and a grandeur that she would have desired? I think we'd all agree that after she and her husband were cast out of the Garden of Eden, a flaming sword with cherubim was placed to guard the way of the the Tree of Life. Notice the sentence of death came upon she and all of her descendants because of it. Look at what sin does. As you and I had to build that point further, notice that this very book speaks so noteworthily. And remember, Jeremiah had witnessed the fall of Jerusalem. You can almost hear him say throughout this book, Look at what this sin has caused. You lived in the lap of luxury. And I say that spiritually speaking. They had everything or could have had it. That exquisite temple, association to God, promise of His protection and preservation of them, they had everything. And now you have nothing. They were captives in a foreign land. The temple was no longer standing. The walls of Jerusalem were gone. They were scattered all over the place. That precious land that they once had enjoyed, that land of milk and honey, was not theirs anymore. Babylon owned it. Babylon controlled it. In light of all those things, look at some of these considerations. What about her friends? Have you ever noticed some of the language found in Lamentations chapter 2? I would call to your attention, verse number 15. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? They had become a laughing stock. As the surrounding nations witnessed it, is this the nation that was once the high pinnacle and zenith of God's direction? And they clapped their hands and laughed at it. You'll notice also earlier in the chapter, verses 1 through 6, highlights for us how far Jerusalem had fallen. Isn't it still true that that frequently happens? be it a young person or older alike. Temptation is placed before you, and the temptation, of course, is something that looks good, it looks enticing, and it looks attractive, and it looks inviting. And then after you participate in it, you feel guilty. You feel like there's a blackness that's come over you, there's a cloud weighing down your shoulders, you just don't feel right because you know you violated your conscience, you've made your parents ashamed of you, you've done something that you regret now, but you've done it and you can't go back. How many a drug addict started that way? A person who took the first drink, an individual who chose to make this decision to hang out with these who you thought were your friends, but all the while you find yourself in trouble because of their influence. Jerusalem's friends didn't come to her aid. In fact, now they were laughing at her. They were rejoicing over her destruction and her fall. Forevermore, didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. They should have been more careful choosing their friends. You and I today are admonished in that regard, aren't we? To be mighty, mighty careful as to who we choose as our closest associates and friends. Surely you'll notice near the bottom of that slide what sin causes today. I've listed very briefly only three. It turns what was blessing into misery. Now I know immediately that might not be true, but the aftermath of the sin, what its consequences are, I find it shocking in many ways the way the book of Lamentations begins. Note the first two verses of the first chapter. Jeremiah hits the ground running, if you please, and says, How doth the city sit solitary? That was full of people. How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, now she has become tributary. She weepeth sore in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Can you imagine what that's saying? Jerusalem, remember, in the years prior to this, there had been nations around that had offered their help, and they'd been friendly. We could mention Egypt, perhaps, as case in point. In Jeremiah chapters 42 and 43, the people were pursuing the friendship of Egypt, thinking that Egypt could save them from Babylon. Jeremiah now says, where are your friends now? Egypt was nowhere to be found. Babylon had beaten her. Egypt was not going to try her hand at attacking Babylon. What about all those other nations? They were nowhere to be found either. Sometimes that's what happens even in sin today, those that were your friends, when you get into trouble, they're nowhere to be found. They're trying to protect their own conscience or their own reputation. They don't care that they've destroyed or have to destroy yours. Look at another thought. What about the fact that it turns plenty into want? Jerusalem formerly had been a city of riches. Wealth, almost untold. Where was all those riches now? Nebuchadnezzar had taken them to Babylon. The brass, the silver, the gold, all the finery of the temple, it was gone. Now Jerusalem was, if you'd say it that way, she had gone to be with the paupers. I would call to your attention Lamentations 2 verses 11 and following. We'll only read verses 11 and 12, but notice it says, Mine eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people, because the children and the sucklings swoon in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, Where is the corn and wine? When they swoon as the wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out into their mother's bosom jeremiah describes and you can imagine it the mothers many of them had been killed or taken captive and left behind were these kids with no longer a mother they wandered the streets aimlessly couldn't find anything to eat didn't have provision to take care of it this is what jerusalem was like now may we never forget what sin does it causes what we're just reading about tonight it doesn't lead to anything better It scars the conscience. It takes away the blessings that one has and turns them into misery, poverty into want. And finally, it also turns fellowship into God, into separation. What these people could have enjoyed was now long in the past. They could have been the pinnacle and all the grandeur and the greatness and the glory that God had in store for them. But look at where they are now. I would call to your attention, verse 5 of Lamentations 2. The Lord was as an enemy. He hath swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds and hath increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Look at what happened. May all of us, old and young alike, recognize that this is what sin does. It doesn't lead to anywhere good. It leads to harshness. It leads to sickness in terms of conscience. It leads to a sense of guilt and unhappiness. It leads to just a gnawing sense of dissatisfaction. And all the while, the devil is grinning from ear to ear. And the greatest thing of all, of course, is it causes separation from God. It'll cause you to lose your soul. It'll cause you to forevermore be distanced from Him. Israel learned what it meant to sin. I've chosen one last slide as a conclusion to the lesson. It highlights in brevity that you and I tonight have studied the history of the book of Lamentations. We've noted that God does not overlook sin. We've observed that God's justice reigns supreme. And we have also and finally concluded what sin does. The Bible is a book of 66, smaller books that tell us what sin does. But it tells us that God sent His Son to take care of the sin problem. Tonight, are you a faithful Christian? If you are, then may you live faithfully in that way throughout the remaining days of your life. But if you aren't, why not this very night come at once to the side of the one who died at Calvary for you? Jesus shed His blood that you might be saved. For without the shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9.22. This evening, if you've never rendered initial obedience to the gospel, you must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must repent of your sins and confess His name as the Son of God and following that to be baptized. And if we could help you, we'd be honored. If you need, though, to return to your first love, we would be excited to pray with you and for you that God would look into your heart and forgive you as you repent of those sins. This very night, if we could be of help to you in a public way, don't delay. But why not come and even do so while together we stand and while we sing?